Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast where a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, but especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are preparing lessons or sermons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I'm discipleship pastor for Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. My guest this week is Jerome Van Kuyken. Jerome's an old friend of mine, a fellow theologian who teaches at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. He was on the show years ago, uh, and just I didn't manage to have him back on again. I loved having him on. We talked about Acts 17 a couple years ago. Great episode. Check it out. But I saw the text assigned for uh, the gospel text assigned for Christmas Sunday. Christmas falls on a Sunday this year. And uh, saw that it was John chapter one, the famous prologue. And I'm like, Oh, I got to have Jerome back on so we can geek out about this text. And he's always just got so many insights into the scriptures and thinking theologically about them. But he blew me away in this conversation. Uh, we already recorded. I'm recording this after. Sorry to go behind the magic scenes there, but he, uh, exposed me to so many of the connections between this passage and Old Testament allusions that it's making. And it's just lovely. So I hope you have uh, as much fun as I did listening to this conversation. If you're enjoying the show as you're listening to it today, make sure to press the share button on your podcast player app of choice so that you can pass this along to others as well. And if you'd like to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text and hear ways that you can support the show there. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Jerome. All right, Jerome, thanks for being here. Let's look at uh, John chapter 1, verse 1 through 14 is what's assigned. We'll probably expand that after the break, but uh, we'll go with the the assigned reading from the lectionary first. John 1, 1 through 14. Would you be willing to read that? Any translation of your choice? Sure. Great. There you go. This is from the NRSV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of a man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word, the word through whom you made all things, the word that is the light shining in the darkness, and the word that came into the world, the word that became flesh. And so we give you thanks also now for these words written about that word. And in this season, when we recollect his coming 
in the flesh. We ask that you may grant us the freedom, the authority, and the joy of interpreting your words faithfully. May our faithfulness that you grant to us by your Spirit also then bear fruit in those who are listening across time and space through this medium. We pray this all in the name of your word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Amen. Yeah. So Jerome, what do you, what do you notice in this text? I mean, surely you've read it, I don't know, probably thousands of times. It's like the dominant text in, a, <laughs> in, in the world that we uh, live in. But uh, reading it fresh today, what, what just stands out at you? What, what do you want to comment on right out of the gate? Right. Well, there are so many interconnections between this text and various other passages in both testaments. So I suppose a few places to go right at the beginning is I want to notice first off the connection between this passage and the other three gospels just to start out with. Yeah. First is the fact that, okay, this this passage, and then if you expand to the end of John's prologue here, to the end of verse 18, this passage becomes almost this massive expansion on Mark's gospel, the first verse. So Mark's gospel starts out the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so you have the beginning. And so John 1 starts out in the beginning. And then by the time you get to the end, the last few verses of the prologue, you actually have Jesus Christ named. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then this language of his being the only begotten or one of a kind, one and only son of God. So in that sense, it's like this massive expansion of Mark 1.1. Yeah. And like Mark, though, even though John and Mark are often set in opposition as two very extremes. You know, Mark is the short and early one, the action-packed one. Right. And John's the the late old man talking. And th- there's some truth to that contrast. Nevertheless, actually, they start the most similarly. Mm-hmm. They start very similarly because then it immediately goes into the John the Baptist story. There's no right. narrative of the, mm-hmm. the birth like you get in the others. So there is a close connection there uh, in the way that it starts up. But I like that. That kind of almost that, a sort of poetic expansion on the opening verse. You can almost think of that as the prologue of Mark. It's just one verse. You know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's great. That's a really, I never thought of it that way. That's fascinating. Do you want to say something about the other Gospels too? Well, of course, the other two Gospels then, let's see, Matthew starts off with, this is the book of the generations, and the, the word in Greek there is is Genesis, basically. Yeah, and same kind of root then as the word of the becoming that's talked about here, Ageneto in verse, verse, uh, let's see, verse three, the things coming into being. Right. Yeah. And, and of course, there are some pretty clear echoes between John 1, 1 through 5 and the opening verses of Genesis. Then Mark's gospel begins by talking about how he had interviewed those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Oh, is that, that's Luke's gospel, right? Yeah. I think you said Mark, but you were talking about oh, Luke, I mean, right? Sorry, no, you're Luke. okay. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, there are fun little echoes. I'm not claiming that all of them were in the author's mind, but once you have those passages assembled, it's interesting to see the intertextuality among them. Oh, that's great. Yeah. From the beginning, 
is referenced in Luke 1, verse 2. Yeah, that's nice. Like you say, they're not necessarily in their heads, probably aren't in mind, but there is a kind of resonance there of these starting points. Right. Yeah, so that, I mean, that stirs in me the question of why do you sense that since it is an expanded longer prologue than someone like Mark? Mm -hmm. So basically right in the place, even though everything about this passage at first glance, if you had no other gospels because of the connections to John the Baptist that are made, the focus is on his, his coming into the world in his public ministry. But since we have those other gospels and, and then it is the Christmas season that we're looking at this text, we can't help but think of this as the, the Johannine birth narrative. Like this is his way of doing the infancy. Again, that doesn't have to be in his mind. Although he is making a choice, he's choosing to start at the beginning of time and in a more poetic way rather than in a narrative way. Right. You have some senses of kind of, I mean, again, we can't get into his head, but I mean, well, at least for us as readers, what is it that the John prologue kind of provides us in contrast then with having compared it in contrast with the kind of birth narrative way of starting things in Matthew and Luke that are so familiar this time of year? Right. Yeah. Well, of course, one kind of classic way of accounting for this is to think of the four Gospels as almost, when you line them up, doing a Michael Jackson moonwalk sort of backwards from Mark starting off with John the Baptist's ministry to prepare the way for the Lord, and then Matthew and Luke step back to Jesus' birth as the beginning, and then John walks even further back into the beginning of time. So that's certainly one way to reflect on it. There's been some discussion, of course, with with the different manuscripts that we have about whether there is possibly an allusion to the virgin birth story in John 1, 13. Yeah, let's take a look at that. Re read that for us and walk us through that possibility. Yeah. Here in uh, verses 12 and 13, it talks about those who receive the word to those who believe in his name. He gave the power to become children of God. And then the majority of the manuscripts then start off verse 13 with who were born, not of bloods, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of a man or a husband, but of God. There is a minority of texts that say who was born, singular. Uh, in which case, verse 13 would be a reference back to the word, the logos, rather than those who receive him being born in this way, but that he himself is born, not of bloods, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of a man, but born of God. Oh, this is a perfect case of text criticism. The normal rules don't really solve it. So there is an old rule that some of our listeners may have heard. If you've not, it doesn't hurt to refresh, but of usually you want to go when you have differences between manuscripts, you tend to go with the more difficult reading, the one that is harder to explain. But in this case, like it kind of works for both because of the style that John's writing in here. It's totally plausible that he could pick up a pronoun from three lines up. This is a poem. You mm -hmm. can do that, right? So it actually could work either way. Now you could probably explain that as if someone came along and you could explain it either way. You could say right. that it was a singular and that doesn't make sense because the previous line is plural. And so some, some scribe fixed it because it didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. But you could also run it the other way where there's an attempt to kind of shove a virgin birth 
reference into this, right? Because <laughs> right. the language. Yeah. Although the nice thing is wherever the text lands as a kind of double meaning or an illusion, it works actually even in the plural, wouldn't you say? Because right. if, if it's talking all about in the, the most translations are built on the majority texts, right? Of the plural, right? Yeah. These of, of us it, through our receiving and believing being born of God rather than through the will of a man, the will of the flesh or the desire of a man that even still there's a possible resonance or illusion to the fact that our birth is akin to his, right? which yeah. is a recurring theme throughout John where the yeah. things that we, there's even famous lines we quote that we tend to associate with Jesus that he himself makes about us, you know, like, you know, so it is with all those born of the spirit, you know, the spirit blows where it wills. And we're like, Oh, he's talking about the Holy spirit or he's talking about himself. Yes. And yes. But the plural there again, he's talking about us, right? All those who believe in his name, we're, we're moving with that freedom of the spirit too, just, just to make another parallel where there's the birth, the being born of God is about us, right? but it's rooted in him. So it, it can work both. It can work both sides. I don't know. Would you, wherever the text, uh, question lands. Does that resonate with you in your reading of, the, of John and the text here? Right, certainly. If you, again, if you do intertextual stuff, First John 5, 18 uses the singular, this language of the one who was born or begotten of God keeps us, keeps his children, that sort of thing. So, there is precedent within the broader collection of Johannine literature for seeing uh, this singular usage. I do think probably in context that the the plural is likely correct, but I would agree that there may well be an allusion to Jesus' own unique birth, given that he comes right off of this plural language, uh, taking the majority reading, and the very next birth talks about the word became flesh. So it does definitely seem to be that in his mind, there is this parallelism, this connection between the way that those who accept him are born of God or begotten of God, the same word can can stand for either meaning, and him as the only begotten son or the one-of-a-kind son who's who comes and becomes flesh. Yeah, and that just goes to show, I mean, that this is not following a kind of narrative order, you know, because the light coming into the world back in verse 9 seems to be the same event described now as the word becoming flesh. Right. Which if you just took it as like a narrative sequence, it's like, wait a minute. So like we believe in him and then he becomes flesh. It's like, no, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not structured according to, I, I saw one time, I mean, we won't do it now. I, I, maybe we will later if we feel like it, but I actually saw a commentator kind of like reorganize it in narrative order. Like if you were to put this in chronological order and it's, it doesn't read as well because you lose the poetic kind of repetition and rhythm, but it really is not presented in chronological sequence, which then plays into this very question of any given line might be alluding to something still to come. Right. So you keep uh, this famous word, it's monogenus, it appears in verse 14, and then again uh, in verse 18, like you said, really the whole prologue goes to 18. There's, I have no idea, you study patristics more than me. I don't know when, I know at least by the time of Augustine, it's very common to just quote one through 14 because there is, I guess something does kind of pretty cool happen in verse 14. And then it goes back to John, but 
you really don't have the full picture, including the name. Jesus doesn't appear yet until verse 17. So, so 18 comes back and says monogenes again. You've been rattling a couple times different ways to put it. Uh, only begotten would be kind of a classical way or one of a kind and maybe one and only. Walk us through some of those ways of taking this term. Yeah, the term itself, there's a question over whether the genes, which exact Greek word lies behind it, because it could be one of, of two different Greek words. The classical way of understanding it that's entered into the creeds and that's familiar from the King James Version and so forth always took this as only begotten. So mono only, like monotheism, only one. Right. And then the geno as to be generated, right? Begat. Right. Right. Yeah. And so this, uh, the idea of the Son of God being eternally begotten of the Father before all worlds, that kind of thing, doesn't rely solely on that particular translation or interpretation of this term, but it certainly helps it. Yeah, John 3.16, you get that word again, right? Yeah, only begotten. That's the classical way of understanding it, traditional way. In the 19th and then into the 20th century, some biblical scholars made the claim that, no, actually, the genes doesn't come from the word for to beget or to give birth to. It comes from genos, the, the word for a kind, uh, like a certain like a genus. Yeah, right? yeah. Genus and species. Okay. Right. And so that argument from J.B. Lightfoot and, and others has influenced modern translations so that the NIV, for instance, will have one and only son. The NRSV and others will have just only son, that kind of thing. So they're taking it in the sense of one of a kind. Yeah. And this is related then to the use of that terminology in Genesis with Abraham and his. Yeah. Right. In the Septuagint for Genesis 22, verse 2. Isaac is described when, when God speaks to Abraham and tells him to go sacrifice Isaac, he says, take your son, your monogamous son, whom you love and offer him as a burnt offering. And so again, there's the question, does it mean and just in that one case, of a kind could, or what? Both work. <laughs> yeah. 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 If, if it does have the meaning of only begotten, you can still argue that it has a metaphorical meaning here. Or that, in a sense, Ishmael has become dead to Abraham by Abraham sending him away. And so Isaac's the only begotten son he has left. But either way, it still conveys a certain idea of, of... You're right. You might not be able to build, at least the classical way of putting Trinity Doctrine might not build straight out of the text. But if you have other grounds, and you should have other grounds, you should never build a doctrine on one text. Anyway, if you have that doctrine up and running already... Actually, one of a kind fits perfectly, right? It's saying, right? It's it doesn't actually contradict, right? Uh, it's just it's a different, uh, it's a kind of different way of putting it. Mm -hmm. um, these still this one of a kind, you know, son that contrasts with our being born of God in the previous couple verses that comes by way of faith in the unfolding of our own life history, whereas. This uh, one of a kind, he's one of a kind because he, from at least from the beginning, whatever that means, in the beginning, we won't even say from the beginning, in the beginning, he is the word that was with God. And the word turns out to also be a son. So it's not just an it, but a, but a he, a person. Right. Yeah. One of a kind. 
Yeah, that's very cool. Well, let's let's take a quick pause right there and come back and explore this some more. Okay. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Drone Van Kuyken. We are looking at John chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. I'm going to go ahead and go all the way to 18. Let me read this again to have it fresh in our ears. This is a I'll just do my own translation here and make some funky choices just to kind of mix it up a little. So here goes. In the beginning was the word and the word was toward God and the word was God. This one was in the beginning toward God. All things through it came into being and without it, nothing came into being. That which came into being in him was life, and the life was the light of human beings. And the light is shining in the darkness, but the darkness did not grasp it. Verse 6, there came to be a man who was sent from God. His name was John. This one came Uh, to witness, or I'll say to testify, that'll be a little better, to testify uh, so that he might testify regarding the light so that all may come to believe through him. He was not the light, but rather in order to testify regarding the light. Verse 9, the true light the light that illumines all humans was coming into the world. In the world he was, but the world and the world through him came to be, but the world did not know him or recognize him. Unto his own he came, but his own did not receive him. And to all those who received him, he has given to them authority to become children of God, to those who are believing into his name, those born not from blood, nor from the will of the flesh, nor from the will of a man or husband, but rather from God. And the word came to be flesh and tabernacled among us, and we have beheld his glory, the glory as a only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified regarding him and cried out, saying, uh, This one uh, was the one of whom I spoke. This one is the one of whom I spoke. Uh, The one who comes after me is before me or came to be before me because he is ahead of me. For from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. For the law through Moses was given grace and truth came to be through Jesus, Messiah. 
Now, no one has ever seen God, yet God, the only begotten, uh, who was or who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. The word of the Lord. <laughs> so, a little choppy there, a couple spots, but I wanted to throw in a couple couple random movers in the translation there. But Yeah, that's always fun. Yeah, so I struggle with this passage sometimes because it's just so beautiful and so well-structured that I almost don't know where to start. You know, I'm glad that we started where we did comparing to the other gospels, talking a little bit about, we talked at 13, we talked about 14. And the thing that always throws me off every time, and I, and I have all my theories about how to handle it, but it feels like John the Baptist is kind of ruining the poem here. Like he feels like it's like, it's so like grand and cosmic. And then you just get this random guy. Why, why can't you just save him for verse 19? You know, it's kind of sometimes how I feel. And I don't know, help me with that, Jerome, help me like embrace why John the Baptist is, is integral to what's happening in this, in this poem here. Right. Well, I think that fits with, with the author's overall style throughout this gospel and that he'll take an incident like Jesus heals a blind man. And then suddenly it turns into this huge discourse that has vast spiritual and metaphysical implications. He does this all the way through. The author is a poet and a profound theologian who finds in particulars the significance of all this, all this theology. A weight of glory. To yes. Use the Pauline phrase. <laughs> yes. Every burns when you view it properly. Oh, that's so perfect. Just so to take then John as kind of the first in a series of these, and it's always very individual. So often what's a group, you know, I think in, uh, in, in the other gospels, you'll often have the disciples said, da, 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 you know, and there's some movement from Mark into Matthew and Luke where it'll get specific. Peter said, right. But it's almost always just Peter. And you kind of get the feeling like the story's operating the same. He's kind of speaking for the 12, right. Whereas with John, it's, it's, it's like a new character. Every chapter kind of enters in, you get Nicodemus, you get the Samaritan woman, you get the encounter with his mother, even in chapter two, the blind man you mentioned in nine, it's just one by one. And then in their experience out pops, but you're right, but it, it's, it's structured a little differently here. Cause you don't get the narrative first, right? Because in this case, it's not teachings in the mouth of Jesus. It's the author kind of speaking kind of in his own voice. Half of the stuff that you see here is going to show up on the lips of Jesus later in the book. But Right. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted a kind of a corny uh, illustration of this, it would be if you think about the beginning of Star Wars, where you have this, you know, the feed scrolling up, all this wording that sets this vast cosmic context, and then it zooms in on one ship. I think that's actually perfect. That's great. Larger context, the fanfare, the music's playing, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Dot, dot, dot zooms in. That's great. That's perfect. So this is the opening scroll (laughs) on the gospel. I love it. Oh man. I mean, right now this is, so here's a sermon starter. Like how, if you're, especially if you're at a church that has a team, like you could literally just do this. I mean, you could run the scroll up, write it in this exact, you know, put these words in that font, you know, run them up the screen, play the music. (laughs) Yeah. And then zoom in on the desert and there's the one guy. And it's not Luke Skywalker, it's John the Baptist. Oh, gosh, you're so right. 
Yeah, that's exactly what's playing out here. No, it's, I think it's, like you said, it's corny, but spot on. Yeah, clarifies what's happening here. Yeah, so he belongs. He belongs in the story. And it's just kind of woven in early on, even at verse six, you know, just immediately kind of drawing our attention to this singular character in the desert. Yeah, and it's not only cosmically wide, but it's also biblically deep. The The Old Testament echoes throughout this prologue are just incredible. Yeah, walk us through some of those. Yeah, I mean, in that way, it fits the just that little moment in Star Wars where the opening scroll, the very first movie, it says episode four, implying yeah. there's already a backstory that we hadn't actually been exposed to when it first came out. Right. Whatever you think of those later developments, but <laughs> we won't go. This isn't that kind of podcast, but right. <laughs> although I will slip in that the sequels have certainly made the prequels look a lot better, but <laughs> <laughs> you may not agree with that, but uh, yeah. Yeah. So walk us through uh, some of that. Sure. Okay. I love that cosmically wide, but biblically deep. That's really good. So walk us through a couple of those illusions. Right. So the first five verses of John one here have echoes of Genesis, like I mentioned, but specifically Genesis 1-1 and 1-3. In the beginning, God, and then in verse 3, you have God's speech, God's word that creates. You have the language of coming to be, the Ginnamai type of language, let light come to be in the in the Septuagint, and then light and darkness are, are both there too. What's interesting, though, as well, and I didn't notice this until just recently, was why is it that John skips verse 2, Genesis 1, verse 2, where you have the Spirit of God brooding like a bird over the waters? Well, that's postponed until Jesus' baptism or, the, or John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus' baptism later on in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, verses 32 and 33. And so it's almost like that's held over as the missing piece of the creation of the universe. The missing piece of creation falls into place with Jesus' own baptism. Yeah, the spirit that abides on him or remains on him as he's in the water. Oh, that's so perfect. Yeah, and if you're steeped in those scriptures, as many of the first hearers of this text would be, and we hope some now would you would notice that absence and kind of wait for it, you know, put you on the edge of your seat. Where's this going to show up? Right. And then it does later in the chapter, which is another reason why the, the John the Baptist stuff so integral to the opening poem. Cause in some ways the whole, you know, you could actually in some ways run the whole first chapter as a prologue, the whole thing's kind of getting the pieces on the table. You right. Know? Yeah. So there's that. That's recognizable. I think anyone who is who has read some of the Old Testament at least would probably, if they thought about it, pick up on in the beginning. Oh, that sounds like Genesis one, the the prologue, if you will, to the whole Bible. But then there are some other echoes here that maybe aren't quite as obvious. One is Isaiah forty. Now we know about Isaiah forty being in the backdrop from. Later on, when John the Baptist is being interrogated by the religious leaders, and he refers to himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness, and that shows up again in Mark chapter 1 as well, uh, this idea that John the Baptist identifies himself with this voice speaking in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord from Isaiah 40. But 
listen to Isaiah 46 through 8 here, where it says, All flesh is as grass, and all its glory is like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Wow. So word and flesh now. Word and flesh in contrast, the glory of flesh versus if you the glory of the Lord in, in Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh will see it together. There's the sea, the beholding the word made flesh. Yeah. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, spoken what? This word. So there are some interesting echoes there. Now, Isaiah 40 in the Septuagint uses a different Greek word for word than what the fourth gospel does. It uses rhema instead of logos. But still, it's in the ballpark of the same idea. And in the gospel, John Jesus will sometimes say rhema. He'll, he, he, they're roughly interchangeable. Word, right. Logos, yeah. rhema. I wouldn't make too much out of that. Right. Yeah. And it's not an absolute given that the author of this gospel is working exclusively with the Septuagint. You know, he might be drawing on the Hebrew Bible directly as well. We don't know absolutely for sure. That's a contested matter, right? Right. Well, I would suggest that there are enough differences with the Septuagint in all these passages. Even Genesis 1 uses a different word for darkness than John's gospel does. So, I think he's certainly not a slave to the Septuagint. Oh, that's that's helpful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When, and that illusion's kind of, I mean, dead obvious. You know, that's not an accident at all. So, but you wouldn't then say, oh, well, it's not the same word, so it doesn't count. Right. One other Old Testament allusion here. You nicely translated verse 14 with tabernacled. Uh, this, this word for dwelt among us has the idea of a tent, a tabernacle, he encamped among us, that kind of thing. And of course, where do we see a tabernacle and glory? We see it in Exodus, the la- latter chapters, when God commands Moses to build a tabernacle, this tent for God to dwell in the midst of his people, and the glory of the Lord comes and fills it. But then you go on in Exodus, and after the golden calf incident and all that, Moses prays to God and asks God in, in Exodus 33, show me your glory. And then God responds in Exodus 34 and proclaims his name, displays his glory in some sense, his goodness to Moses and proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, who is abounding in chesed, this steadfast love or mercy or something like that, and truth or faithfulness. Well, it's not a big leap to translate that abounding in chesed and emet as full of grace and truth. Yeah, no, I would fully endorse that. I think, I mean, it's nice when people say like, oh, well, there's grace and truth. We kind of, we import those with our own sense and we kind of play them off each other. And it's fine. It's a nice thought, but I'm pretty sure this is grace here is, is an illusion. And, and basically they're basically a Hebrew parallelism is two ways of saying the same thing, right? Because truth is about being trustworthy, right? right? It's not about ideas being true, you know, although that can be in the mix, but. And the hesed that's translated love or mercy or whatever, it, all of which is included is covenant faithfulness, right? You've bound yourself to someone and that binding will abide even the face of unfaithfulness on behalf of the other partner, which so then it looks like mercy when it's being undermined. It looks like love when it's going well, right? I think that's right. I think that's right. That's definitely the way to, I hadn't thought about how, 
I've always thought that, yeah, yeah, that's kind of that. It hadn't occurred to me till you walked me through it today that when God first names himself as that is Exodus 34, which is also this glory passage right? where yeah. you have in the end, I mean, verse 18, it says, no one has ever seen God. And you immediately think, well, what about Moses? The guy literally two verses earlier, who's like, has the best claim of having seen God mm-hmm. alongside maybe Isaiah, who's also being alluded to, right? And yet neither of them sees the face. Exactly. They don't really yeah. see. Yeah. Moses, God hides him in the cleft of the rock. So he sees like the after effects of God's glory. And Isaiah doesn't get beyond describing kind of the the surroundings of God or he's on the throne and there's earthquake and smoke and all this. But he doesn't describe God's face. And even Ezekiel doesn't do that. And so you have this sense that finally the full revelation of God has come. The the son has exegeted his father in that sense. But again, what's powerful about the Exodus 34 backdrop is that is the passage in the Old Testament. It's the climactic passage that reveals God's character. You have the self-revelation of God's heart. And all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, there are allusions back to it. Jonah, Nahum, the Psalms, Nehemiah, They all go back to that passage, those verses, to appeal to God's character. And so now you have that revelation through Moses of God's character that's finally been built upon in such a way as to be fulfilled fully. The law, with all of its goodness and revelation of God, came through Moses. But finally, this grace and truth that were proclaimed by Moses has been fully revealed in Jesus Christ. Yeah, and that implies you could take verse 17 in two different ways. You could take it as the law was given through Moses, and then now at this later time, grace and truth has come to be through Jesus Christ. I I keep translating come to be because it's the same verb that's used earlier when it's talking about things being created. But with that allusion to Exodus, you could take it the opposite way. And I think this probably fits more the way that John – I don't think John thinks like there wasn't grace and truth under the covenant history. It's all the grace and truth that was there was already – Yeah. and side note, we brought up the Trinity earlier. This is the point of the doctrine of the Trinity, whatever you want to get into the metaphysical side of it, and you do eventually have to get there. The main point is that the God who shows up here in the middle was the God all along. Right. right? That's, the, that's, that's the, the point, the purpose, mm-hmm. the meaning, the significance of the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah is that this isn't a turn into something else that wasn't always already the Mm -hmm. case. Yeah. And yet there's an important sense that it's fulfilled in in first century Palestine in a way that wasn't the case before. And and so you have all the way through. Because it was the word, but it wasn't yet the word made flesh. Would that be the way to contrast that? Yeah. Because you have the glory of the Lord being revealed now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a fullness of revelation taking place now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a but the very logic of revelation implies that it already was the case, but hidden, right? Hidden in the in the bosom of the Father, the heart of the Father, close to the Father's heart, as some translations I think, uh, in a good way. I think that is a dynamic equivalence of the phrase. This heart of the Father is being made known fully now, grace upon grace. Yeah, and when that happens, all these feasts, the festivals of the uh, of the law are fulfilled in in Christ. That's a a theme that runs through John's gospel here, not just the Passover, but Feast of Tabernacles, even his first miracle with turning 
the water into wine, the water is in these jars for ceremonial washing. And so every part of the Old Testament covenant and what's given in the law is not just thrown out as rubbish, but is brought to fulfillment. The Sabbath is brought to fulfillment through Christ. Absolutely. Well, like you said, cosmically wide, biblically deep, and yet particular individual stories where it unfolds. That's great. Well, let's take a quick break and come back and explore some sermon starters. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Jerome Van Kuyken, and we're looking at John chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. We fudged a little all the way to verse 18 because that seems to be where the opening prologue actually comes to its completion. So yeah, this is uh, one of the gospel texts suggested in the Revised Common Lectionary, which I'm not a slave to, but it's a nice jumping off point. One of the texts suggested for Christmas Day, which happens to fall on a Sunday this year. That doesn't always happen. So let's explore some sermon starters. If somebody's uh, listening to this and kind of maybe they've already selected this text or hope, or maybe just this is just going to be one piece of the puzzle in a sermon. Just for you as a as both a preacher and a listener to sermons, what are some things that you know you're looking for or, or pitfalls to avoid when preaching on a text like this during the Christmas season? Right. You know, you can you can get so far afield into all the beautiful poetry of it and if you've mentioned this that it's possible to preach something that's very heady but that doesn't actually connect with people's lives. And so it is, I think, important to do like the author does and bring all this great cosmic material back home to specific people and their lives and their needs. Yeah, no, I think that's essential. I mean, there's a part of me that wants to play on even that that virgin birth illusion in verse 13 that we started with to kind of say, you know, I wonder if there's something there to say, you know, even as we look back on the birth of our Lord, what is it that God is giving birth to now? And how does that actually work? I mean, there has been analysis, just to add an exegetical point to support that, there have been analyses of this prologue into kind of a chiasm that place that verse 12, those who receive him, those who believe have been given the right to become children of God is actually the middle point, the centerpiece which is strange because we usually think of the word became flesh as kind of the centerpiece. And I think there's a case to be made for that, although it has parallels. This is the one thing that doesn't have a parallel. Almost every line gets paralleled at the beginning or the end or partway through in kind of an A, B, C, B, A structure. This is right there in the middle, unrepeated. And so it's easy to gloss over. But like you said, to really connect both with the text, to be faithful to the text and to really connect with people's lives. Actually, the focus of this is not on the, I mean, it's essential, it's indispensable, but the focus is not on the event that took place back there and then 2,000 years ago. It's actually directing our attention to something that's happening now in the present. I think that's even hidden in a couple verb tenses that sometimes get obscured in the translations. In verse 12, there's two references to those who, be, who receive this authority to become children of God. The first is in the past tense, to those who received him, perhaps referring to the disciples, and then present tense to those who believe, who are believing, present tense, into his name. And at the end of the gospel, it'll say these things were written so that you may believe in his name and therefore have life in him. 
And also verse five, the light shines, is shining, present tense, in the darkness. So I wonder if there's something about, again, that would be an exegetical sort of a reference that could be made early or partway through a sermon to kind of say the text itself is saying, don't just get caught up in the cosmic you know, metaphysics or the biblical illusions or the particularities even of just Jesus' life, although all those are essential, the arrow of this whole story is zooming in on you. You're the man in the desert. You're Luke Skywalker, right? This is you, right? <laughs> and then that raises all kinds of questions for a sermon, right? What is the darkness that's surrounding you, right? Where are, is the light shining right now? What's the hope that you need? And that what is what are the barriers to faith for you today to believe that God really is full of grace and truth? Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned the, the darkness there, verse 5, the verb there that's used for the relationship of the darkness to the light could be translated in an intellectual sense. The, the darkness just doesn't understand it. Or in an active sense of the, the darkness has not overpowered it. And so different translations will take that different ways. I kind of like to use the verb mastered. The darkness has not mastered it because masters can go either way, intellectually or in terms of exercising force over. Yeah, I used grasp in order to get both meanings. Similar kind of thing. Although mastered is nice. That makes it a little that makes it a little punchier, a little more violent in a way that I think (laughs) captures the the word Mm -hmm. and the context. Yeah. But you think about our our world context over the past few years, even, and the relationship between knowledge and power, right? And where do we get our knowledge from? What sources do we allow to have power over us uh, in terms of what we think we know? And then also just the reversing that, the use of power as a substitute for fact claims or appeals to facts. And so to me, it's highly relevant. The light is shining in the darkness, regardless of what's going on. The darkness cannot master it. The light keeps on shining. Yeah, and the power games of darkness through what it claims to know or what it claims to have, what kind of authority it claims to have, doesn't stand a chance in the end. Yeah, it's definitely a word of hope. Yeah. Yeah. And while we want to get relevant and practical to individual people's ordinary lives, we don't want to do that to the point that we lose the majesty of the the cosmic vision of this. Because people live by hope. People live by more than just having ordinary needs met, material needs. We need some sort of, of grand vision to live for and by. And so certainly the the poetry and the cosmic context have their place as well. Yeah, I wonder if a way you could do it, there's a couple ways you could do it. You could kind of go big and then zoom in. One alternative possibility is to start with the middle of the passage and kind of move out, right? So then you get from our individual darkness, what we need, you know, the problem in our life, you know, then you move to the coming of Christ, as this dawning of hope, but then locating that in this larger biblical depth, cosmic scope, you can kind of zoom out and then you can zoom back in at the end. Sometimes if you don't, if you don't start with something that connects to the now, 
you never get there at the end. So I feel like if you just wax philosophical for 80% of the sermon, it might be too late. But I absolutely agree. You can't just stay there. You can't just camp out there because then you're actually just trying to let our own lives speak and not actually be spoken to, not actually hear the word, right? Right. Because like the line from Isaiah, right? All <laughs> um, the flesh, you know, the flower fades, right? It's it's this eternal word, this forever word is what we need. That's what's going to give us hope. Yeah. And again, what's striking is that uh, verse 14, this word that in the context of Isaiah, the word and the glory of God is contrasted with the flesh. And yet the wonder of the New Testament is that this word, this divine word of God that is eternal actually becomes flesh, fragile flesh, flesh that has just in verse 13 had a rather negative dismissal of the the will of the flesh, right? The word God has not remained aloof, but has truly entered into our situation of susceptibility to darkness and sin and temptation and death and taken all that on himself in order to give out the eternal life and light that are within him. No, I think that's beautiful. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, I think there's a lot of orders. I think this would be a text where I would, because of the strangeness of the structure and because of the need that you've highlighted, I would say to not feel beholden to kind of go through the text in the order that it's presented. I think that might trip you up. There are some texts where I'm like, that's exactly the way to track it. I feel like the sermon will have more focus if you actually choose not to do that. And it's a great time. This is a great passage, I think, to make your own creative choice about the structure. Because I feel, and maybe this is true with John in general, but especially with a passage like this, if you follow it, kind of, if you do it expositional, just kind of verse one, verse two, it's kind of like, why don't you just read it to me, right? Like, like, like it's a, you're not going to make it better, right? The only way to make it your own, I think, is to go your own way with the, in terms of the structure. I don't know. You might not agree with that suggestion, but that would be my homiletical advice for this passage. Yeah, I think it's going to depend on the congregation. This author, the fourth gospel, starts out this way in this order, presumably because he can take for granted that you have people who've spent their lives soaked in the Hebrew scriptures. And so they'll pick up on all of this and it resonates with them and all of that. But for a lot of ordinary congregants today in North American culture, they're not going to pick up on all of that. It's just going to be confusing. Yeah, and that that makes me think of another suggestion. I think I would be inclined as a preacher and to suggest to other preachers that instead of overwhelming them with all of the biblical illusions, to maybe pick a lane of which one you think is helping make your main point best. And at least for me, I thought the stuff from Isaiah 40 was pretty killer. That really got me excited when I heard you read that. And that would be fresh for some people who have heard the Genesis 1 connection before. It would make the text fresh for them again. And for those who have, they are aware of the Isaiah thing, well, then great. They'll just, they'll love hearing some thoughts about it. But I feel like that would set up really well. Again, I think the focus of the sermon should make the the decision on that as well as your awareness of what the congregation can need. But the way that that sets up that word and flesh contrast and then the coming together of word and flesh is pretty killer. 
that one, although the Exodus one would be great, the Genesis one one would be great. I, I think because we discussed all of them, I don't want to leave the impression to any of our hearers that a faithful sermon is going to talk about all of these. I would actually recommend against that. I'd say pick one that seems to really click with you. Spend more time with that. See how it really makes the passage come alive and the Christmas message alive. And then compose a sermon where you maybe go there, have people turn there, walk them through that passage a little bit, verse by verse, just kind of show it. Yeah. Kind of teach people how to catch these illusions one by one rather than try to just dump it all, which will be great for you and, and will be a better – you will understand the passage better if you see that it's trying to allude to the whole Testament. That is the point. Mm-hmm. But I feel like sometimes sermons with so many Old Testament references just become overwhelming to someone who's not – can't track the, the argument anymore. Yeah. Well, and the fact is, you know, this passage has – been so overwhelmingly rich that theologians have returned to it again and again and again and biblical scholars and also it's it's a fool's errand to try to unpack everything in it in one you know 20 to 30 minute sermon you know another idea homiletical idea would be maybe this passage is what you camp out on as a preacher for the entirety of advent now that's it's too late this advent season to do it but if you're thinking ahead towards next year this might be a passage where okay i'm going to preach on john 1 1 through 14 or through 18 for this advent and each sunday we're going to break it up in subsections yep yeah or perfect this passage prologue according to moses this prologue according to isaiah this prologue you know, in, in conjunction with Genesis, whatever, different Ooh, angles. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be good. Well, heck, you could start that series now. You know, can't drag out Christmas too long, but maybe a week or two doesn't hurt. Oh, that's actually a really great idea. Yeah. So let's just pitch that real quick. Cause if you had four Sundays of Advent, the big three we talked about was, oh yeah. So we'd have Genesis. You have the Exodus one, mm-hmm. the Isaiah one. I was trying to think, is there a fourth one? <laughs> uh, well, well, maybe you just do John the Baptist, right? Because right? yeah. that's the whole, that's one of the things it's saying is he's then in the line of these prophets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or you could, uh, at that point. Uh, or the only begotten, could, the Abraham. Yeah, yeah. Abraham with Genesis 22, or just plain spend some time unpacking the, the Trinitarian implications of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been fantastic. Jerome, I love that idea of kind of building a series. Again, not breaking it into pieces, but kind of through different lenses. That's a really cool idea. And your advice right before that, I think is a great place to end is just to say, don't try to bite it all off in one swoop. Guess what? We get to preach on Christmas every year. So catch one angle and let it be enough, you know, because we get to return to this mystery every year. That's one of the gifts of the rhythm of the Christian year is that there's certain things that we expect to revisit annually, which is a, a burden on us because we're like, okay, how do I make this fresh again? I think that's how a lot of preachers feel about it. But if you can turn that around and see, oh, that's a relief. I don't have to do it all. What's one one angle that will be enough and to offer that up as a gift to the Lord and to his people? So, well, thanks so much, Jerome. I appreciated the time. I always have a blast exegeting scripture with you and I'm sure our listeners appreciated it too. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks uh, to all our listeners, of course. Thanks to our supporters. If you'd like to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com slash fresh text to see ways that you can support the show. Thanks to our uh, producers behind the scenes, Todd Bouchong, as well as Eric Fisher, and to uh, Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. Can't imagine doing this show without you guys. Thanks uh, to all. 
And we hope that you have a uh, Merry Christmas and a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye.